This is Crime Connections, and we're your hosts. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jackie. Today is our last episode geared specifically towards domestic violence and intimate partner violence for the Domestic Violence Awareness Month. If you have been consistently listening each week, we've tried to diversify the cases we spoke about, starting with Vera Jo Regal, then Jennifer Dulos, and last week, Lanny Martinez. And now we want to take you to Texas and tell you about Deanna Cook. Now let's get into it. So who is Deanna Cook? A lot of news outlets and other podcasters call her Deanna Cook, but when I watched her mom talk about her, she said Deanna. So that's what I'm going to call her. So Deanna Cook was born June 19, 1980. She was the daughter of Vicki Cook and Mark Thompson. From what I found out in my research, Deanna's father was not really in the picture, which bonded Vicki and her daughters. Deanna was the oldest of four girls. Her younger sisters are Valencia, Davia, and Carlita. And Deanna helped raise the girls with her mother. So by all accounts, it was a very tight-knit family and a very religious family as well. They went to church every Sunday at the Super City of Refuge, and religion stayed with Deanna into her adulthood. Deanna enjoyed running. She did track and field at Oak Cliff High School and broke multiple records. Whenever she had a problem, she would run. That was her way of relieving stress and to help her solve a problem. And her mother's even been quoted saying, when she would have problems, I would tell Deanna, go run it out. She was a very intelligent and hard worker in school, and she had a very motivated personality. She had aspirations of being a model and an author. When she was 16, she became pregnant and had the baby just shy of being 17 in March of 97, and her name was Nasia. At 18, she had finished high school and had another baby named Ayana. Wow. I couldn't tell if the fathers were in the picture or not. Um, I also couldn't really tell if they had the same father, but I've also heard some other podcasters speak about this case, and it seemed like she had the same father for both of the daughters. So that's what I'm going to go with because I couldn't go out. There was nothing specifically said whether or not. So I think both babies had the same dad, and it did seem like Diana was doing it all on her own. She loved her daughters, and she wanted to provide the best life for them, so later the trio moved to Bulk Springs, Texas, which was an upper-middle-class neighborhood. In 2008, she married Delvecchio Patrick, who was five and a half years older than her, and he had two children of his own, which I never really heard anything in any of the media reporting on this case about his children, so I'm not really sure what was going on with his children, but it seemed like they were a very nice blended family together. Mm Mm-hmm. But the beautiful blended family idea ended up being a very short-lived idea because Delvecchio Patrick was a very violent man. He had prior run-ins with the law ranging from drug possession to aggravated assault charges. Before they married, Delvecchio would often beat up on Diana, and she thought if they got married, the married life would change him. And oh, man. Vicki Cook, which is her mother, described their relationship as very rocky. The first call to police was in January of 2009. Diana's friend, Kamara, who was staying with the couple at the time, was the caller in this instance, and she explained to the Bulk Springs police that she had walked in and saw Delvecchio holding Diana at knife point, walking into the room while he was choking her. Kamara screamed at him, and he threatened to do the same thing to her. That's terrifying. Diana explained to the officers that had arrived on the scene that Delvecchio kicked the door off the hinges and was choking her to the point where she was almost blacking out. 
Then he grabbed a knife and threatened to kill her. The officers arrested Del Vecchio. Then they gave her a family violent pamphlet, which I'm guessing is just something that they do anytime they arrive to a domestic yeah, violence like situation. Yeah, just to like give information about it. And then she also inquired about getting a restraining order. That following month, Del Vecchio was released on a $25,000 bond, which anyone knows anything about bonds, you don't actually have to pay that full amount. You just pay a percentage of it, and as long as you go to court, you get your money back as long as the charges are, you know, released from you. So then he tried to resume his life as normal. I don't know if they got back together at this point. It's very mixed in different articles. But once again, he tried to choke her and she asked him to leave because she no longer wanted that relationship. In March, he called her phone hundreds of times and then threatened her saying he would have his friends sexually assault her daughters and kill her in front of her children. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's... That's disgusting. He's a monster. In August, he choked her again and stole her wallet. He called Vicky and threatened to kill Vicky as well. And then he was arrested again and at this point his bond was set at a hundred thousand dollars and the judge obviously noticed the patterns of how he keeps stalking and harassing her and threatening her family her friends and even her children and that's why he increased the bond more and he also had to be electronically monitored and those employees that are supposedly monitoring these electronic ankle bracelets they have to constantly be watching to see if the laws are being broken and if it's not constantly being watched, the person wearing the ankle bracelet can get away with pretty much a ton of stuff because if it's not being constantly watched, it's not going to be caught. Right. Which makes it terrible because no one has, the government does not have the funds to do that. Right. Like, there's not going to be someone that's constantly sitting there watching Del Vecchio Patrick's every move. Oh, he went to the grocery store. Oh, now he's, you know, showing up on the same street as Diana and her family. Like, exactly. Like, they can't constantly be watching them. So he's still getting away with these harassing phone calls, mm-hmm. showing up, like, just intimidating her for no reason. She tried getting the restraining order, but they were not allowing it because he was in and out of jail. So every time she tried to file it, they wouldn't allow it because he's currently in jail. But when he's not in jail, he's stalking and harassing her. Yeah, it's like, okay, well, he's going to get out, and then what? Exactly. And I, that's what, it just doesn't make sense. They could only give him so long in prison for each one of these charges, so they would serve him at the max time, and then he would get right back out, and then he'd, you know, continue doing the same things he was always doing. In October of 2009, she filed for divorce, and he refused to sign it. So she asked the courts to deliver them to him because he was currently in jail for one of his charges of stalking and intimidating and threatening and choking her. Of course. And soon after he gets out, the judge dismisses his case, which means he gets out of jail again, and he still refuses to sign any of the paperwork. So they're still married at this point. She has multiple times tried to get restraining orders. She's tried to file for a divorce. And it's nothing's going in her favor at all, which it just doesn't make sense because she's clearly a victim and she's trying to do the right things and they're not helping her at all. Yeah. In March 20th of 2010, so a little over two years of them being married, so they're still married at this time. They're not together from all of the things that I've read, but... It seems very volatile, so I I don't know if they're getting back together, breaking up, or if he's, like, weaseling his way into her life, and then she gives him a chance, because her mother said she was a very forgiving person, so she was trying her best to maybe just make the situation work, but on that March 20th of 2010, Diana is 
running to her neighbors in her bras and her panties and screaming for help. And the neighbor hears her saying, he's trying to get me. He's going to kill me. And she's in her bra and panties at oh this point, God. like running in the yards, trying to get her into her neighbor's house to get some sort of shelter away from him. She was covered in bruises and marks and the neighbors saw Del Vecchio Patrick standing in her yard. So they knew. And so the neighbors all kind of had an idea with as much as the police were showing up to the house. And Del Vecchio was not allowed to stay there. So he ended up leaving. And I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing she called the police or maybe she didn't because it, it wasn't really mentioned there. But this is the shocking thing that happens. So Del Vecchio was not allowed to stay. She just got shelter at her neighbors. I'm not sure if she called the police. I, I would like to think she did, but I couldn't find specifically she did. And he ends up going to a hotel. And later that night in the hotel, the employee sees him and he has visible wounds. So the employee calls the police and Del Vecchio Patrick says, Deanna assaulted him and that she caused the fight. And they go and arrest her. They arrested Are her. you kidding? Oh I am my not. God. Then Diana is like, no, this man did this to me. She also has wounds. So she, even though she got arrested, she was released pretty quickly. And then they arrested Del Vecchio and he got arrested for one year. So he had to stay in jail for one year, which wow. I, at this point, she's probably thinking it's finally over or at least it's over for a little bit. She has some little form of security because this yeah. man's behind bars. When he was released, he continued his original you know, same BS of constantly showing up, harassing her, leaving her violent phone calls and threatening her. And in May of 2011, two months after he was released, he broke into her home, dragged her by her hair, hit her, sliced her hands with a knife and threatened to kill her with a crowbar. Now this is his fifth arrest involving violence against Diana. Also at the time, the judge finally grants her this small luxury of a divorce from him. So finally, after all of these years of her trying to get out of this divorce, so she tried to get rid of, she tried to get out of this relationship, like on the first call, like she wanted the restraining order, was never granted it. She had called and tried to file divorce proceedings multiple times. And again, they kept denying everything. It is insane to me that these women or men have these like so much proof like the person's calling me i've called 911 and reported them stalking me threatening me da 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 hundreds of times mm-hmm. and yet the government or the court legal system. system is just like Oh, it'll be fine. Yeah, they're turning a blind eye. It'll be fine. Like, you have a laundry list of charges with this man involving this one woman. and like she's he's been in jail for her. Multiple times. Because of her, you know, because of what he's doing to her. And at one point, he was in jail for a year. And you're still just saying, like, mm-hmm. oh, you'll live. It'll be okay. He's not going to actually kill you. Right. Even though he said it a hundred times, I'm going to kill you. Like, how the, how does that happen? Yeah. So, finally, he is, it seems like it's over, you would think, but their divorce proceedings start, but it doesn't get finalized until January of 2012. So, once again, that's four years of being married to someone she didn't want to be married to. And just when she thinks it's all over, five months later, in May of 2012, she calls the police to report that he has called her 107 times and threatened to kill her. Her daughters at this time were 13 and 15, and she was living her life and providing for her girls all on her own. She never needed a man, and she continued to have that strong-willed personality that she could do anything. Unfortunately, on July 28th of 2012, she calls countless times to the police about Del Vecchio Patrick. She explains that she 
to each operator, there's different ones each time, that she was calling because she had spotted him at the park across the street from her home. So her house had a really nice park. And it was perfect at the time for them. But now it's this little hideout he can use. Oh, well, I'm just at the park. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not stalking her. I'm hanging out at the park. And so she called them early that day because he came and knocked on her door and told her, you better not go to work. You better not come outside. Like, just trying to intimidate her. Oh, so she man. didn't want to come outside. She, at the time, had missed work the day before because she was scared when she saw him then as well. And she also had called and was like, hey... Can you guys go make him not be around me? Like, I've tried multiple times to get a restraining order. They're not, you know, proceeding with that. So just, can you make him leave? She just wanted him removed. She didn't want him arrested. She didn't want anything to happen to him. She just wanted him out of sight. So that way she had that small, like, little peace of mind. But every single time this would happen or she would call the police on him, it didn't matter if she didn't want him arrested or not. He would always greet her with some form of violence always if she got him in trouble but she just wanted him removed at this point Mm -hmm. so she told them that she had tried to get a restraining order but they never issued one she wanted them to remove him from the area because she felt threatened and that he would harm her home because before he has like ransacked her house like totally destroyed it while she's at work yeah and when officers arrived by now it was late and they questioned Delvecchio and asked him why he was there and why he was at the park so late you're an older man at a park by yourself like this is weird so he told them that he was just waiting on a ride and that the ride was just running behind but they noticed that he had two bags with him so they were like well what are these bags like do you need a ride somewhere so they ended up driving him to his stepdad's house and the officers didn't arrest him because they didn't he wasn't causing any sort of disturbance besides making her uncomfortable but they their hands are tied because she doesn't have a restraining order or anything yeah Sunday, August 12th, 2012, Diana meets Vicky at church, and guess who she's with? No. <laughs> yeah, she's with Del Vecchio. You're... So I don't know if they got back together or what. I mean, maybe he was just, like, weaseling his way in and was like, I promise I'm a changed man. I'll oh, go to well, church I mean, with they're you. they're very manipulative, so I can see that, but at the same time, like... Why? Wow. Yeah. So Vicky said that they were both acting very strange, so I don't know what that means, but like maybe she, he like drugged her or something, or maybe it was like a forced situation. You yeah, know? it could be. So that's on August twelfth. That was actually the last time Vicky and Diana ever saw each other in person again. But throughout the week, they had spoke on the phone every day because Diana would always call her mom while she's on her way to work. They would always talk almost every single day. Mm-hmm. So on Friday, August 17th of 2012, that was their last conversation. That morning, they did a prayer line, which that was for members who couldn't ch- like attend church or maybe they just wanted you know to have that little extra closeness to God. It was... It was just perfect for anyone that was busy, but they could do it. So when they prayed together that morning, then Diana texted her mom after the phone call, and it was at 9.34 a.m. She told her mom that she was about to take a nap, and they didn't speak the rest of the day. The following day, Saturday the 18th, she didn't answer any of her mom's calls, and she wasn't active on social media, so her mom called Dovecchio, who said he hadn't been able to reach her either, and that he hadn't seen her since Wednesday, before when she didn't answer him, so he claimed he sent some of his boys over to check up on her, and she didn't come to the door. So... What does that mean? This is what I thought was strange about that conversation. So Dovecchio 
he doesn't get his way and he'll call her 107 times. And if he still doesn't get his way that way, he shows up and threatens her. So why would he send his boys? And not go himself. Exactly. Or only call her once. And not 100,000 times. Yeah, Yeah. because he's been recorded calling her 107 times other times. On Sunday the 19th, when Deanna did not come to church, now alarm bells are going off. And Vicky decides to go to Deanna's home. But before she did, she got a weird call from Del Vecchio. So he changes his story. He claims that instead of Wednesday, it wasn't Wednesday was the last time he saw her. The last time he saw her was on Thursday. But he did emphasize that he had his buddies go check on her when she wasn't answering his phone calls. Hmm. Yeah, it's just not really adding up. So at this time, Deanna's two daughters weren't home. And I couldn't find anything that explicitly stated where they were. But I found out that her girls would sometimes stay with her mom or they would also stay with their aunts. So that was happening sometimes when Del Vecchio was being really ridiculous. So Deanna just wanted to keep her girls safe so she would have them stay with one of them. Well, that's good. Yeah. After church, Vicky, Carlita, and Carlita's the youngest sister, and Deanna's two daughters, they went to the house immediately after church. And they noticed something was wrong because they spotted the dogs outside in the back, like the backyard. Mm-hmm. So Vicky calls the police to do a welfare check because Deanna was not answering her phone calls or the doors. And the operator told them that they needed to call the hospitals and the jails in the area first before they could send anyone out. What? Yeah. So Vicky said, um, no, that she wanted the police to come immediately because she's like, listen, I haven't spoke to my daughter in X amount of days. And then on top of that, this is super unlike her character. There's no reason that she's not answering the door and the dogs are in the backyard. Like none of this is adding up. Send someone now. And the operator is refusing to do so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So after she has like pled her case, she's like, no, something's wrong. I I need someone here. Still no one. So then, according to the True Crime Daily interview with Vicky, Carlitha, Nacia, and Ayana, Carlitha is like, "Mm, no. So she jumps the fence and kicks the back door in. Wow. And when she gets into the house along with the others, they all notice a very overwhelming smell along with a bunch of water flooding the house six inches deep. So that's like ankle level uh, in this really nice house. Yeah. And... They said everything appeared very clean, except there was just water everywhere. And so they covered their mouths and continued to look for Deanna. Oh, no. And noticing that it smells horrible, there's water everywhere. But Vicky, who was still on the phone with the operator, they never hung up. She followed the water, and she went into Deanna's room. And when she pushed the door open, it fell off the hinges. And she saw the room was ransacked. And I've, if you look up the pictures of it, it looks like someone committed like a robbery or something the mattress was flipped over the like her she has like a little area she had all her jewelry everything was like just tipped over it just looked like a whole mess diana was very anal about having a nice clean home Mm -hmm. and obviously if you see a mattress flipped over and you have someone missing there's something happened for sure so that's exactly what she said and she you can hear like part of her 911 phone call like if you look it up that she's like you can tell she's kind of getting like oh what the heck is going on here yeah So she goes into the um, bathroom that's connected to the bedroom where the source of the water seems to be coming from. And that's when she found the unimaginable scene. She saw a shadow behind the shower curtain and Deanna's lifeless body was blocking the drain. So all the water was filling the shower bathtub and spilling into the home. 
and she knew right then and there that Delvecchio Patrick killed her daughter. And then finally, police are dispatched because the dispatcher realizes the urgency of the situation, even though she already explained to her that she knew something was wrong. So what police saw when they got there is they see water running into the street from the house. That's how flooded oh my. it was. Wow. It was just continually running. And they said it was coming from underneath the garage door. As soon as they opened the door, when they kicked the door open, it was spilling I, out of the house. It's like hard to even believe that could happen. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's what they saw originally when they got there. So they knew something was wrong. And so when the EMS arrived to try to revive her, they saw, they saw that she was already bloated from all the water and they knew there was no chance of saving her. The EMS knew she hadn't just passed away. It had at least been a day. So they turned off the faucet, and by this time, the officers are already noticed that the bedroom door was forced open. The door was literally kicked off the frames. So whoever came through that door, they had a lot of force and anger behind whatever they were going to do in there. The mattress was flipped. Like I told you before, the lights were knocked over. That whole part of the house was in disarray, but everything else in the house looked normal. So I can't even imagine the force you would have to have to kick a door off its hinges. Yeah. Cheap or not. That would be a lot. Well, and he, he, if you ever, like, I'll show you pictures once we finish, and we'll post them as well. He looked like a, like a bigger dude. Like, he, definitely over six feet. He looked pretty strong. Like, there's, he, he had the ability to do these things. So, Delvecchio Patrick was living near the area of her home, and the day that she was murdered, he called her over a hundred times. So, when he was like, oh, I called her once, she didn't answer, I sent my boys over. BS. Like yeah, literally. We are we all knew this. Like if if you if you gotten this far into the case the way I'm talking, you know. Mm-hmm. So that morning of the 17th, Diana and Delvecchio are seen together. And it was by um, Diana's mail carrier and she had known her for a very long time. She had been her mail carrier the entire time. And when the mail carrier says she's seen her, it wasn't long after that text message was sent to her mom. So the mail carrier named Debbie, she said the situation just seemed very off. And then a neighbor also spotted Del Vecchio in the area that morning, too. At 10.52 a.m. on Friday, August 17th, a 911 call goes out lasting 17 minutes and 21 seconds. And during the call, you can hear Diana begging. She is begging for her life. She keeps saying, please stop, please stop. Oh my God, you can hear Del Vecchio telling Diana he's going to kill her. And you hear running water and gurgling like he is waterboarding her and sticking her head under the water, pulling it out, screaming at her, and putting her back in the water. Because she called from a cell phone when she was calling 911 to get help, it took them nine minutes to find her location, which that's normal. And we, we know that from the Landy Martinez case. If you don't call from a landline, it's a lot harder for them to find you, but they can after they get the pings off the cell phone towers. Yeah. And you also have to remember, this is in 2012, so like the technical issues and stuff, they're not as high quality as what they would be today. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so this is the issue. They did not mark her phone call where she's begging for her life as an emergency. Are, mm-hmm. okay, so how in the, do these people keep their jobs, do you know? <laughs> I'll tell you. Because how in the, you should be prosecuted. Well, um, what in the actual hell? Instead of it being marked emergency, it was marked as voluntary. It took police an hour to get to her house. Um, they stopped to shut off an alarm at a convenience store, and 
I've heard other people say it was an alarm, and then they also went and got coffee. I've heard that it was a 7-Eleven alarm, and it was not emergency. So I've heard different stories. But when they arrived, no one answered, which obviously. And they called her, the number that had called police, they called and left her a voicemail. Or they called and it went to voicemail. And then I've also heard different um, people that have reported on this case say that police were going to jump the fence, but when they saw that there was dogs out there, they decided that they they didn't want to do that. It seemed a little dangerous, and they had no warrant to do that, which, I mean, the dogs, from what I found out, are chihuahuas. Is what, like, are, so oh they, they couldn't... Gosh. I'm sorry, but any seasoned detective or police officer would be like, all right, I just got a phone call. Although, police don't know that it's an emergency because the operator marked it as voluntary. So whenever at your leisure... Go check this out. Wow. And so they get there, and I feel like most officers, if if they knew the, the emergency of the situation, they would have been like, I'm jumping the fence. Or breaking the door down. Breaking the door something. down. Yeah, and they're not going to be too scared of a little ankle biter dog. Like, yeah. yeah, it sucks to get bit by a chihuahua or a small dog, but, like, it's not like they're going back there and it's a St. Well, Bernard. I'm an animal lover, and I'm, like, all about it, but kick the damn dog. Yeah. Like... Make it work. Make it work. Or have someone hold that little dog while you're going in the house. Calm the heck. But also at the time that they're not getting those visible cues of water rolling out of the house or anything like that. Like it wasn't the officer's fault. They they didn't know what they were getting into. Oh, for sure. The operator should have specified. Exactly. I just want to reiterate. It was not the officer's fault. They had no idea what was going on. It's 110% the operator's. It was her fault. So, when they finally do the autopsy on Diana, they said that she had drowning and homicidal violence and asphyxiation. There was two male DNA profiles when they did a vaginal swab that was conducted, and neither one of them matched Delvecchio Patrick. What in the hell? My guess is, you know what? All for her. Like, I, I don't, I don't really, it, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it wasn't Del Vecchio because Diana was a single woman. She can do whatever she wants. No, I'm just wondering, did he have his boys so that's come and what, rape her or? That's what I've always wondered too. So when they said that, I've always wondered because there, when, if you listen to what's released of the phone call, cause they don't have the whole thing released. That's what I've always wondered myself. Yeah, I'm wondering. Was, was if, she calling this other guy that? Devecchio knew that's or was one of his friends or right so that's what I've always wondered like when when I started researching this case that's immediately where my head went to but then I'm also like okay could it be something less sinister where she was dating someone else you know like that that is totally okay too so at the end of the day that was a lead that they never really furthered with Mm -hmm. because they knew they had a good idea and they had a phone call well, yeah, because, I mean, if it was consensual, who cares how many guys she slept with? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. But the issue is, is if it wasn't... And it was his boys, which he has very much reiterated more than once. And he even admitted that he sent them over. Yeah. So whether he did or not, and maybe that is something... I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know that answer. The day before Deanna was murdered, so on August 16th, that Thursday, there was a call to police eerily familiar to every other complaint she had made previously the months before. So Deanna told the operator that she was trying to go to work, re-explained that this has happened before, and that she was not granted the restraining order, and that Del Vecchio Patrick was across the street at the park, and she wanted him away from her home so that he did not ransack her house. 
and she told them that he has tried to kill her three times. So that was the day before she was murdered, okay? So the day before, she called and asked for help, and then the day of, she called and asked for help, and nothing. So there's multiple, like, there's a nice long paper trail of her just trying to get the help she needed, and everyone failed this woman. Yeah, I was going to say, the the system failed her completely. She's begging for help and begging for a normal life. And obviously, she also has something mentally going on that's wrong with her because you know when it comes to domestic violence a lot of times they get roped into this situation because they get manipulated yes and so clearly she also has something going on but she begged for help and not and didn't get any and the thing is too it's like if the operators like whether or not you are at work every single day every shift or whatever Mm -hmm. this girl has called multiple times in the same week at that point the operators, I would think, would probably know who she is. Oh, I'm sure. And as many times as the police have went out there, they should have known right then and there, oh, this house has been, you know, had officers out here multiple times in the one year for domestic violence. Hey, maybe we should maybe think that this might be a more sinister situation versus she's just not answering the door. Exactly. With the evidence that they had prior to the, like, final phone call, they should have known better, period. Mm-hmm. Because typically officers, typically, I'm not saying this is a fact, but typically they are around the same areas. Yeah, over so and over they again. kind of so, have a good idea of like who's who. I mean, frequent, frequent, people. frequent people that they're constantly seeing, homes that they're constantly going to. Like they kind of have a good idea of yeah. like who is who and what kind of situations are going on. And, yeah, I don't know how big their task force was. I I should have looked into that maybe, but what I do know is the operator's system, they didn't have a lot of staffing, so that to me would tell me right then and there that they probably do have a good idea of who is who. Oh, I'm sure they do because most operating systems are smaller. They're not humongous, and they'll typically talk like, oh, I dealt with this today, blah, blah, blah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, according to the NBC DFW article on this case, three years after Deanna Cook was murdered, Delvecchio Patrick was found guilty of her murder in a week-long trial. Jurors only spent two and a half hours deliberating, and they finally came to the verdict. He was charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to 85 years and must serve at least 30 years before he will be considered for parole. The fact that he's even eligible for parole is ridiculous. Well... Exactly, because he's going to be younger than 70, so he'll still have time to go out and cause issues, because he loves, he loves to go to jail. He just, you know, even before Deanna, he was a frequent flyer of the jail, so he just loves it so much. That's terrible. His defense attorney only wanted him to serve about five years. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I'm not. I am not kidding you. And they... That man deserves... He's demoted. He, yeah. Well, his his lawyer's demoted. Like, who... Yeah, it's your job to try to get your person a lesser sentence. But at the same time, like, you know damn well he's guilty and he will do it again. And she just needs to find another I victim. honestly don't... I mean, I know there has to be someone out there to defend the um, criminals. Criminals. But at the same time, I literally don't understand how people have the heart to do that. They probably don't want to. They're probably like, I have to pay my student loans off and eventually I'm going to turn into, you know, instead of a public defender, I'm going to go be a private, you know. Yeah, or they're evil. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe. (laughs) Because I really don't understand that. 
Yeah, I I mean it just it's all about money, and they all yeah. have their bills they have to pay too. So, and I'm sure if you ever watch like things like they probably deep down they're like I really don't want to defend this serial killer because I know he did it. They can't stomach that, or at least not well. Yeah. I like to think. Like, I, I'm curious about that. I would like to talk. We should try in the future to talk to a a public defender or a lawyer for someone that's like like the criminals yeah yeah okay we we definitely because I, I would just like to pick their brain like how do you go about your job how do you feel about it when you know this person killed someone or you know this person raped someone how do you go into court and defend them yeah well and a lot of times like they have like the client privilege where they they know what the what has they happened. can tell you yeah and they're like okay so okay i do know this happened and now all of a sudden i have to defend this person that is guilty Mm-hmm. They okay. So back to back Sorry. to what we Sorry. were saying. So he only wanted him to serve five years. And do you want to know what their defense was? What they hyper focused that uh, she had a mental illness. She had bipolar disorder and a mood disorder. And so she just deserves to die. Mm, well, this is what they said. They they said that they should have a lesser sentence because she also abused marijuana and I heard PCP as well and. They were like char- like character assassinating her, and they said that she hallucinated the whole attack and killed herself. You, oh my, yeah, yeah. And You're I was, ki- I was like, excuse me, why? I was like, I watched two different like news outlets report on that, and then I also read art- multiple articles saying that they said that she hallucinated it. And I'm saying, uh, excuse me, what? Like the autopsy right then and there proves that she didn't hallucinate anything. So you're telling me she strangled herself? Right. And then she was also yelling at Del Vecchio and then she would like change. She would jump across the room and be like, oh, no, I got to do a really deep voice and pretend to be Del Vecchio. <laughs> like that's that not even crazy. possible. Like there's so much evidence to say that he was there. And then on top of that, you have a super incriminating like and he admits 911 being call. there. I mean, he had literally admits like that he being together and then, oh, I haven't seen her since Wednesday. Oh, just kidding. No, it's Thursday. Yeah. Thank you. So he admits to being there, and then he also, on record, on a phone call, on a recorded phone call, and he just is like, she hallucinated it. I'm like, are you dumb? Are you dumb? Literally. Then, to add insult to injury, while he is awaiting his trial, there was a lady named Jamie, and she was passing out medicine to inmates, and this was in 2013, and he confessed to her that he also killed Tiana. Out of nowhere, to add insult to injury, he just said it out of nowhere. And so she came on trial, and she... uh, Thank God. She was like, no, he he said this to me, and um, this is what happened. So that also worked in Diana's family's defense. And here's what really ticks me off. During the victim impact statement, he laughed at Deanna's daughters. And by oh, the way, they're sad. they're teenagers. They're in their later teens, you oh, know, at the time. So really her sad. daughter, Ayanna Williams, she responded to him when he started laughing at her. She says, I hope you get raped. And he, then he flipped, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, he flipped them both off while they were on the stand. Honestly, go Ayanna. Really though, <laughs> like I think when I when I saw that when she because there's video of her saying it and she said it so like there was so much fierceness about her when she said it, and this is a teenage girl she has watched this man beat her mother for the last few years and then she's also witnessed like the the turmoil that her mom goes through dealing with this man harassing her so like you know what go her I'm proud of her and she stuck up for herself and I'm sure she said what most people would want to say to someone that has hurt someone in their family. 
During the court proceedings, everyone that was for Diana, they wore purple tape over their mouth to symbolize that how she was silenced yeah. during this time, which I thought was really beautiful. I also would like to say, I found this too. He got a tattoo of a woman that resembled Diana caught on fire. <gasps> yeah, so it was basically... It was just another, like, just stab in the back to her family and yeah, friends. Yeah, really. Like, because he's just such a pig. I, When I saw that, too, I was just, he's a monster. There has been some 911 operating call reform since this has happened because her case has made national news mm -hmm. because of what had happened. It was essentially preventable. I can't say within 100% that, you know, maybe she wouldn't have been murdered by him if they would have gotten there because they still only had, they found out nine minutes after where the location was. So, yeah. I mean, by the time they got there, maybe they could have prevented it. Well, I mean, it could have been prevented if it was taken seriously. In the first place with the restraining orders and things like that. Because if he would have broken a restraining order, he would have went to jail for longer. Yeah. So there are things that could have happened that would have prevented these things. But the 911 call specifically, I think that there was a good likelihood that she could have been saved if it would have been taken as an emergency versus yeah. a voluntary. The two 911 operators involved in this case, the one that talked to Vicky and then the one that heard Diana's 911 call, this is what happened with them. So I heard that the one that was involved in Diana's case that listened to her basically pleading for her life, she went into hiding because a lot of people were really, really ticked off about it. Rightfully so. She didn't mark it as an emergency, therefore the police didn't arrive until almost an hour later, and then the whole dog situation. So there was a lot of like issues with that that came from that call alone. The call lasts 17 minutes and 21 seconds, and around the 15-minute mark, you no longer hear Diana pleading for her life. She claims that she couldn't hear any of this because there was so much background noise and the headphones sucked at the operating area, so she couldn't even hear any of this. But you can... I call bull. I do too. I, you can really hear that there's some sort of scuffle. Like, it doesn't sound like the phone accidentally called and it was in her pocket. You hear screaming and people arguing. At that point, you should have been like, okay, let's start tracing this right now. Yeah, so there was I that. I mean, after two minutes of you hearing her begging and screaming and whatever, you should have started tracking it. Like, why does it take you 17 minutes? Well, the call lasted 17 minutes, so she kept her on the line, and then it took nine minutes to figure out where she was, and then an hour to get the police there, so by the time the police got there anyways, she, I would say she was probably already, she had already passed away. Mm -hmm. The other operator was, um, I can't pronounce her name, her first name right, so I'm just going to say Mrs. Hopkins. You can easily look this up if you are so inclined to. Mrs. Hopkins was the one that took that phone call and she was suspended for 10 days and then could return to work after her suspension and her suspension was due to not putting critical information into the call sheet i.e. marking it an emergency so she got 10 days from everything that I found okay oh you killed a girl practically but here's 10 days of suspension and that's why I think she went into hiding because everyone is really really mad According to another article from the NBC DFW News Online, as for the operator that handled the 911 call with Diana's mother, she called and tried to report her daughter missing and to do a welfare check. And however, the operator Angela Harrod Graham told Vicky, Diana's mother, to call the hospitals and jails first. And Angela is quoted saying, I was trained to ask people if they've contacted jails and hospitals first, she said. Part of me feels like I'm torn because if she had bad training, maybe it wasn't her fault. But at the same time, yeah, the same if you time, have someone 
seriously like, no, I need someone to come here right now. I mean, what, what are the cops gonna, like, yeah, unless there was like a seriously crazy other situation, then whatever. But if they're not busy, what's the harm in sending them out? We're not busy enough to go to a 7-Eleven and, or whatever it possibly was, turn off an alarm and get coffee. They had the time to go check on this woman. Thank you. And so also if you have a mother begging you, please send a cop. I think something happened to my daughter. Please send the cops. And you're like, oh, sorry. You have to call. Did you? I would have. If, if I were the mother, honestly, I would have been like, yeah, I already did that. There, she's not there. Well, yeah. Which I get, like, it's 20, hindsight is twenty twenty. And in the moment, she's probably like, no, just send the effing cops mm-hmm. now. And that's why Carlitha was like, screw it, I'm kicking the damn door in. Yeah. So... Then she, Angela claims that she feels like she's a scapegoat for this devastating event. And what I should say is, most importantly, this was a preventable uh, devastating event. And in the same NBC DFW article, Kimberly Cole was the manager of the call center. And then Ronald Thomason, they were both disciplined. So those are the people that were involved with the call center. They were also disciplined as a result of this 911 information not being handled correctly. So what I would like to say, though, because Angela feels like she's the scapegoat, so what I've also found is that she also had mishandled other phone calls as well, and this was like her third strike year out. Because a month prior, the phone call operating area had an issue with someone who was calling about gun violence, and her boyfriend shot her, and she would have not been shot if they would have sent the police in time. And she got paralyzed. So... The call center and the state got sued for that because it was something that was preventable. So this is all happening at the same time as Deanna. So they have changed the reform for the training. So it was all this Angela girl? Or, or, um... It was all the same call center. I just know that Angela had other issues with phone calls, and this was, like, her last one that they were, like... That is absolutely crazy. Right. That she just... And she had been there for, like, over, uh, I think I read something like 17 years she had been an operator. So, and those are just the ones we know about that maybe she mishandled. That, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I'm sorry, but fire her. She did. She got fired. She was the one that got fired, and she went to, like, she tried to do, like, a trial to reverse that decision, and they were like, no, like, you, you've had other issues, and this is just what we know about, and this one is like, yeah, you told a victim's mother that she needed to call the jails and stuff first but like at the same time you didn't really follow the protocol that you were trained on is what she, but she says that the training was that way and but also be a human yeah and realize that maybe that something she, is going on you got you people know that this woman has called so many times of her boyfriend harassing her threatening her beating her yada 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 he's gone to jail multiple times mm-hmm. because of it and yet you're not taking the ser- the situation serious at all right and there's no excuse my thing as well is why did it take this girl getting murdered, another woman becoming paralyzed from getting shot, for them to finally reform their training system for these people? I would say the media. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it was under serious media scrutiny. And so now they have domestic violence calls as a high priority, and they ended up hiring more staff. Good. But what bothers me is the girl that handled Diana's phone call, as she's getting murdered, and you hear her, her voice cut out, she only was suspended 10 days and she yeah. got her job back 
so like I would love to know their like what are your levels of like screw ups I mean a screw up with someone accidentally hanging up on someone robbing a grocery store if it's nonviolent. okay I can understand maybe you're not gonna get fired immediately for that one because no one died but you have someone that literally died while on the phone asking please to help them I feel like that one should have been a fireable offense oh I 100% agree so, it's like, what's the freaking line? Exactly. Where is the line drawn? Because if you're allowed to stay there and only get suspended for 10 days after practically... I mean, she didn't physically kill the woman, but she definitely didn't help it. No. I, I, I agree with that. So, like, how many times... How many people have to die before you get fired? That's what I want to know. Because that's ridiculous. Because, well, and that's why, like, I, I felt bad initially watching Angela's, like, thing where she said, I feel like the scapegoat because you, there's video of it. And I kind of felt bad for her, but then I started reading and I'm like, oh, you did this too. And this. And that call center also had this going on. And yeah, she's not the whole person. She's not the face of every screw up at that place. But yeah. She did her fair share in 17 years, or it was it was a longer amount of time. I'm pretty sure she was there for 17 years before she got fired. So, in a different article by the NBC DFW news outlet, um, the Cook family filed for a federal lawsuit against the city after the 911 call she made the day that she died because of, obviously, all those things that we have previously said about them stopping to shut off a burglary alarm at 7-Eleven, going and getting coffee, and then just an hour later moseying on over to our house just to see. Obviously, the family's like, no, this is effed up. We're going to sue you now because you did not handle that situation correctly. Yeah. More than a month earlier, which I was talking about the lady that got shot, there was a lady that got shot, there was also a house fire that happened in July that the call was mishandled as well, and the house ended up burning to the ground. Oh my god! So there's all of these things going on at that same call center. So the Dallas police in late August said that they have created a new classification for call takers and dispatchers they use when relaying information to officers in the field is what their solution was. The calls involving serious bodily injury or death enlisted are the highest priority along with domestic violence, which these are all great things. But at the end of the day, you're using these as the tactics to kind of hush a family that just lost someone. So Yeah, because of your mishandling. Yeah. So, according to the Dallas Morning News article, the judge dismissed the Cook's lawsuit because they said... So, it never made its trial, but it's because the mishandled call and late arrival of police did not contribute to Deanna's death. And therefore, there's basically no case. And on the flip side, this has went on for seven years. So, this it was a seven-year-long lawsuit. During this time, the city was the defendant, and they spent $350,000 oh. on defense teams Wow, to defend the city. So, how about this? How about you should have settled with the family and gave them the $350,000 because you screwed up. And you spent it anyways. And you spent it anyways versus just settling with the family and now maybe those two young girls of the mother that was murdered could have went to college on that money. Exactly. Instead of, you know, let's just keep doing the runaround and it's, not settling. The only reason you're spending that money is to prove that you're not wrong when you were wrong. Yeah, period. exactly. And if you were wrong at all, then why did it cost so much to get you out of that mess? Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I was just, I'm just like, okay. And all those tax dollars went to defending the city versus, you know, maybe just, I don't understand why maybe they just said it. Maybe reinvest yourself. Um, and 
settle for one and two, maybe hire some better freaking 911 operators. Mm-hmm. Because Thank you. there's that's too many mishaps. I'm sorry, but you need to check yourself because you're wrecking your town. Like, holy crap. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was like another little interesting fact to add in here. And then also what has come from this is her family created Deanna's voice. And I did go to their website. It said it was down for um, maintenance. I think that has since changed, but it's called Deanna'sVoice.org. And they host events, they provide scholarships, and they give back to families that have also experienced domestic violence. And they help the community and other victims. So it was similar to Tara Grant's situation where they created a really good cause after a horrible situation. And nonprofit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was I really like their idea of it. And then and then also Valencia, which is one of Deanna's sisters, she went on to pursue law school because she had always oh, wanted that's to really be cool. Yeah, she wanted to be a lawyer and her sister had always told her that she'd be a great lawyer. So she was like, This is my push and I'm gonna help defend victims like my sister. Ayana, her daughter, um, she continued to play sports in school. I couldn't find another update about her. And then Nacia studies biology and then Vicky was their guardian after Diana passed away. And Vicky was uh, the, the mother. The mother, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I also wanted to add in a little bit more because every time we've talked about a case this month, we added some sort of facts in there. So also in October, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So in Breast Cancer Awareness Month, they have come up with a statistic. Every two minutes, someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, but a lot of people do know someone that has passed away from breast cancer or something, some form of cancer. But you would think with that kind of statistic where every two minutes, someone is diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, but that is not the main killer. The main killer of women of color is domestic violence. So you have someone that's dying of breast cancer. Every two minutes, someone's getting diagnosed. But the main killer of women, that black women, is domestic violence. So you would think that breast cancer would be that thing because every two minutes, someone's diagnosed with cancer. But that's not the case. They're dying because they're getting murdered by their significant other. And more than likely, because of their color, are not being taken seriously, are not being treated fairly. Also, black women face high rates of intimate partner violence, rape, and homicide. And a study by the Violence Policy Center, or or VPC, so in 2018, black women were murdered by men at almost the double the rate per 100,000 than white women. When the murder weapon could be identified, 64% of black female victims were shot and killed with guns. Within that group, 70% of the women were killed with handguns. On the Institute for Women's policy research website, I also found an article called Violence Against Black Women, Many Types, Far-Reaching Effects. And the data from that is reported that more than 4 in 10 black women experience physical violence from an intimate partner during their lifetime than white women, Latinas, and Asian and Pacific Islander women report lower rates. Black women also experience significantly higher rates of psychological abuse, including humiliation, insults, name-calling, and coercive control than women overall do. Sexual violence affects black women at high rates. More than 20% of black women have been raped during their lifetime, a higher rate shared among women overall. Black women face particularly high rates of being killed at the hands of a man. A 2015 Violence Policy Center study finds that black women were two and a half times more likely to be murdered by men than their white counterparts. More than nine in 10 black female victims knew their partners. 
And I also read too, the reason why black women usually have a higher rate of domestic violence and intimate partner violence was similar to what you were saying earlier was that they also deal with like, you know, um, discrimination, discrimination, uh, segregation, like systemic racism. Along with all of those things I just said, a lot of other things that I've read go along with just regular life. So when people are racist to black women, they are, you know, there's a systemic racism. There is people being rude to them at their jobs. All of those things are led into also into their relationships. So when you have women that are being discriminated just because of their color in other parts of their lives, it kind of trails into their intimate partner relationships as well. And then those are also things where they're, you know, they're saying the toxic, nasty names Mm -hmm. and they're thinking, oh, you're never going to be good enough. You're not smart enough. You're stupid. You're not making enough money. And it's not because of them not trying. It's because there was an entire community of people that didn't stick up for them. Yeah. So that also has a lot of, like from what I've read, a lot of effects on that as well. So that could also be part of the reason they're having a higher rate of intimate partner violence and domestic violence. I know this month we added more facts and different statistics, but I wanted to try to bring awareness to different groups of people that may not get the coverage they are due. I hope you enjoyed listening to us this month, but more than that, maybe you learned something new. I know there are a million and one podcasts out there right now talking about true crime, but we hope that we can bring you some local ones that you may have never heard of or maybe you don't really remember, but also ones that listeners request, like Vera Jo was a request this month. We try to do all of our requests that we do, and another one that we've gotten a ton of requests for is Gabby Petito. Initially, we, I personally did not think that our tiny podcast could do anything, so we kind of held off on that, but we still had so many people asking us to cover it, and Jackie did do Gabby's case, so join us next week when we do the coverage of the nonstop talked about case of 2021 and hopefully we bring you a little more updates and more recent information about brian laundry sagas and we hope that you enjoyed our month of domestic violence and i hope you guys learned something and just keep everybody closer to you and be more aware of things and ask people how they're doing and if you see it do something exactly don't don't just close your eyes because you think you can they can handle it you know you never know how much is on someone's plate you don't know what goes on behind closed doors and i I mean we say domestic violence this was our hyper focus month but we there's a ton of cases that we've covered that involve domestic violence some of our very first cases what what happened where you know we had nanette she Mm -hmm. was in a domestic violence case and she's still missing you know still jennifer dulos is missing there's there's tons of women out there that are missing that need to be found because they need closure their families need closure their kids need closure so join us next week when we cover the highly requested gabby petito case thank you guys thank you